0: On this week's show, John David Washington, the star of Spike Lee's powerful new movie, Black Klansman.
1: I think hate sort of preys on on the unknown, the ignorant.
0: And showrunner of the new Lifetime Netflix series, You, Sarah Gamble, is with us here on Pop Culture Confidential. Hey everyone, I'm Christina Jörling-Biro. So glad to have you with us here again. We have two great guests with us this week. John David Washington talks to me about his role in Black Klansman. There he plays Ron Stallworth, the true story of an African-American police officer who infiltrated the KKK. Plus, she must be one of the hardest-working producers on TV this fall. Sarah Gamble, whose writing and observations on themes like young love, anxiety, depression within the sci-fi genre on shows like Supernatural and The Magicians have made her shows so beloved with audiences. Her new show is called You. It's a twisted love story in the social media age. It premieres this Sunday. But first... Journalist Alicia Lutz is back again with us to talk about this week's past industry news. Welcome back.
2: Hi, thanks for having me.
0: Um, So a lot of the conversation this week has been dominated by the news that comedian Louis C.K. made his, what should we say, stand-up comeback, so to speak. (laughs) So nine months after several of his female colleagues came forward and he admitted to masturbating in front of them. That's sort of the story behind this comeback. (laughs) What do you know about this performance that he had at the Comedy Cellar?
2: Um, well, it's really sort of interesting. Um, when you think about the setup, he was unannounced, just arrived on stage without anybody knowing about it or asking permission, um, which is, to be fair, um, can be standard practice at comedy spaces, especially in New York. Big time comedians will drop in, as it's called, um, quite frequently. But uh, you have to be aware of the optics of something like that. Forcing yourself on a crowd unannounced after having forced yourself on women without their consent for a very long time in your career. Um, people
0: may have not wanted to, to pay for his. I mean, they're yeah. sitting there, they've paid their entrance and their drinks and whatever. There may be several people in there who did not want to spend money on this particular. Yeah.
2: Thing. You know, to be perfectly frank, like if you look at the statistics, there probably was a survivor of sexual assault in that room, Um, you know, at least one. And so it is, it was not the best move to make on Louis C.K.'s part, um, nor was the content really, you know, I think a lot of people were sort of expecting after Louie, you know, his, his apology admittedly was kind of problematic and wasn't really great. And, um, you know, he said he was going to take a long time to step, sit back and listen. And I think a lot of people really expected because of how thoughtful and introspective he is in his comedy that, you know, maybe he would come back with a set that really sort of tackles the, the ugliness of, of what, he did in that power dynamic and it was none of that it was all of the same sort of stuff um and it even included a joke about rape whistles being unclean which again if you're thinking about this as a human being you think maybe coming back after sexual assault allegations i don't make a rape whistle joke you know like that's something that seems very common sense yeah that
0: really that really made my head spin the rape joke because i mean yeah. there that that's hard to sort of get past in this situation
2: it's audacious and it feels very much like kind of a fuck you really yeah. pardon my french but like it feels like kind of a fuck you to the women that he abused and to assault victim you know survivors in general mm-hmm. um so
0: what have the reactions been
2: uh, not great really mm-hmm. um you know people have been very very upset and very vocal about it um which is night which is nice to see because you know louis ck is beloved He got a standing ovation when he came out on stage that night at the comedy cellar, you know, like he is somebody people really, really love and really, really respond to because of the perceived honesty um, in his jokes. Uh, So I think people took it very personally, you know, with good reason. There were a lot of really excellent um, conversations on Twitter about it. And there were some really excellent pieces um, by Maureen Ryan in Variety and um, the comedian Aparna Aper- uh, Namanchala. She had a great piece in the New York Times as well. Um, Just really looking at why, why our first concern in these situations is, but what's going to happen to the abuser and not, but what happened to the victim? What about all of these years of careers that we don't have from female comedians because they felt bullied or pressured or pushed out or you know, too, too messed up from their experience to go on. And and I think that that's really the conversation that a lot of people want to be having rather than this conversation of when is it enough time for men to have, you know, been right. quiet so that they can come back when it's still, again, putting male personhood above, you know, women and victims of their abuse. Right. So it's it's really, really, really... Um, fraught and heated with very good reason because it's how how it has gone down like obviously there's no guidebook for how or roadmap for how this stuff is supposed to go but
0: he has a few defenders right like Michael Che from SNL he went out on Instagram directly and said you know he served his time so to speak and and people should be able to make a living I mean obviously in the case of a a criminal a rapist I mean it was actually like Weinstein or something but is there any sort of discussion as as ha, is this time enough or can you come back and make money on what you used to do when you have when something like this has happened in the case of Louis, for example?
2: Um, you know, I think it's really, really complicated. And I think that's what makes it such a hard um, discussion to navigate, because I think that nobody is saying that. All men, blanket statement, can't, you know, quote unquote, come back, can't make retributions, can't, you know, make right some of the things that they've wronged. Um, But I think it is a very nuanced, very case by case basis thing. And I think that's what a lot of people want.
0: And maybe not make a rape joke on your first set.
2: And maybe yeah. don't make a rape joke on your first date out right. after being accused of uh, masturbating in front of women. Right.
0: <laughs> Alicia, thank you so much. Can you stick around and help me introduce someone I know that you really, uh, really means a lot to you? Sarah Gamble.
2: Love to, yes.
0: <laughs> okay, I'll check right back with you. Our first guest this week is actor John David Washington. Now, he's starring in Spike Lee's new film, Black Klansman. This is the true story of the black police officer, Ron Stallworth, who infiltrated the Ku Klux Klan in the 1970s. It's so gut-punchingly relevant right now, particularly in the wake of the Charlottesville riots.
1: The KKK is planning an attack. How do you propose to make this investigation? We'll establish contact over the phone. We'll need a white officer to play me when they meet face-to-face. Hello, this is Ron Stalworth calling. Who am I speaking with? This is David Duke. Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan. That David Duke? Last time I checked, what can I do you for? Well, since you asked, I hate blacks. I hate Jews, Mexicans and Irish. Italians and Chinese. But my mouth to God's ears, I really hate those black rats. And anyone else, really, that doesn't have pure white Aryan blood running through their veins. I'm happy to be talking to a true white American. God bless white America.
0: John David Washington is the son of actors Denzel and Paulette Washington. He made his acting debut already at age six in another Spike Lee film, Malcolm X. He's having an incredible on-screen year. Besides Black Klansman, he's starring in Robert Redford's The Old Man and the Gun and as a Brooklyn policeman in Reynaldo Marcus Green's drama Monsters and Men. I started by asking Mr. Washington how he reacted when Spike Lee called him about the role in Black Klansman and what Spike Lee's movies have meant to him.
1: I mean, they meant everything to me. I, I I. He was the first to give us a true us being people of color, a true voice in this industry. He broke down a lot of barriers, a lot of doors. He he kicked the door in for us and he did it in such a style. He had such a style that was unique. It was inspirational. It was I, I enjoyed it so much. He, he he brought us through different neighborhoods, different cultures. Um, this unique way of storytelling was just like legendary, you know what I mean? So any kind of call from Spike Lee, even if it wasn't to work with him, is is a legendary call one I'll never forget.
0: Now I wasn't personally familiar with Ron Stallworth's story, and and after seeing this, I thought, wow, this you know you almost have to go Google. This is crazy. When he presented this to you, Spike, I mean, um, did you have to do sort of a double take?
1: You got that right. I mean, it felt <laughs> like the Dave Chappelle skit. I'm like, there's no way this is this is real. So I, and, and I'm still like, I think I still, do, I mean, I still like it though, because Spike'll make something really cool and and innovative but yeah then you you do the research and you know I read the book first and then yeah then I go online and see his interviews it's like oh my god this is this really happened then I got to meet him and he passed around his Ku Klux Klan membership card I was like I was I was done after that I couldn't I was like oh when do we start let's go this is incredible
0: (laughs) but to talk about this very gut-punch, powerful part of the movie. We're talking about homegrown hate here, homegrown terrorism. Um, making this movie, what have you learned about what compels a group or entire families to hate, really?
1: Insecurity. I think um, hate sort of preys on on the unknown, the ignorant, the uneducated. You know, there's uneducated and then there's miseducated. You know what I mean? And I, I, I feel like... Uh, Hate sort of has a way in, um, an easier time in with preying on those that are sort of uneducated. And then they become miseducated with hate. Right.
0: I mean, we're, as you know, um, right wing winds are blowing over here in Europe um, scarily quickly. Um, so we're talking about all these things as well. And the movie really reminds us that we're fighting the same fight. What did making this teach you or, or inform you is what can we do
1: um for me while filming while doing my research i stayed away from the impact it could have or is this a love letter to the government is this a is this is this a mission statement that would that would be a deterrent into in, in, in trying to tell the truth authentically i couldn't think like that however after seeing the finished product um and watching it a couple times i um uh, I feel like the big takeaway for me is how we sound, you know, how, how the lexicon of hate, you know, this sort of verbalization of, of so much anger and hatred and ignorance, you know, um, that's sort of put together and, and, and institutionalized and taught. And you see now that it makes it very dangerous, even though these are simple people. That believe in these simple things it's dangerous because they're organized and obviously stood the test of time it's very generational mm-hmm. so hopefully we can recognize that after seeing this film and find out whatever the words are uh to you know to to come together to bridge that gap whatever the language is for community another big takeaway from this film is that there were white officers that helped ron that believed in ron's uh that believed in the sting operation that would made it successful he couldn't have done this on his own so what does that tell you? That tells you, it's a, you know, it's, it's an old lesson, but one that seems to still work is it takes a community, a collective of people that, that understand the same language. They don't necessarily believe in the same things, everything, but they believe in peace. Mm-hmm. They believe in, a, you know, a, a, a coexistence of, of harmony. So we got to find that language, a common language to do so. And hopefully people can, can think of something or, or be inspired to find that truth after watching this film.
0: I mean yeah cuz you specifically mentioned language there is a lot of hate language in this movie was it difficult for you to film that to say those lines and
1: Because of Spike Lee for me it wasn't because of Ron Starworth and and, and, and him telling me what he was going through mm-hmm. to, to to put himself to say that it wasn't I had a mission and and I had a directive and I and I and I executed it and uh it wasn't too because the writing and in the story so good I it didn't feel like it wasn't for shock value. It wasn't to to wake the, or keep the the audience members in it. Wake them up with a couple slurs, and it wasn't. It was all purposeful. It was it was there for a reason because like it was the language of hey. Some people speak uh, French. Some people speak Spanish. A lot of people seem to speak hate, and it's international, and that's that. And that's what it sounds like. Yeah, yeah, that's
0: true. Um, after the investigation was over for Ron, um, do you know sort of how what david duke felt about him and and what sort of con did they have any more contact and
1: yeah he he a couple weeks ago uh david duke called him and they talked for an hour
0: oh really did you, what do you know about that conversation
1: uh what i know about it is uh david seemed to be very concerned about how he's portrayed in the film oh yeah uh, yeah i think he it was weird he like he told ron that he was gonna tell his people to watch it i think he told him like one of his favorite spike lee movies was was Malcolm X. Uh, you got to ask him for, for more detail, but it was it was kind of ridiculous.
0: <laughs> but it is the thing sort of about David Duke is that he's still around and he'll still sort of make these calls and sort of PR wise be um, very scary. I mean,
1: <laughs> oh, he, he definitely knows what he's doing. And, yeah. and the fact that it, and it's up to, you know, to you, all the people writing about this to recognize what he's trying to do. I mean, it is funny to hear that he's resurfacing, but it's for a reason. So as long, you know, we, you know, that's up to, I don't know, you know, there is a reason for it. That's oh, for I mean, sure.
0: one would say that as a friend in the White House. Wow, yeah. there you go. <laughs> yeah. there you go. Um, you were mentioning, um, police, the co- portrayals of cops in the movie. What are your thoughts on Boots Riley's comments
1: of the movie? Boots Riley made made a, f- a very unique film. You know, the fact. Listen, Spike said it's almost impossible to make a film, even a bad one. Um. So just the fact that we can just make films, that we have this opportunity, this, this uh, luxury to, to tell stories and to share our stories, it's a celebration. So I celebrate him. I celebrate him for, getting able, for him being able to make his movie. Mm-hmm. That's what I think.
0: Well, talking about the this is not you've, you've portrayed police a couple times now. Um, what have you gained for perspective of, of law enforcement actually playing these roles?
1: That there are, It's a thankless job that there are men and women of color out there that are protecting and serving their community. And some of the people that are, that are calling them out, that are saying that they should be killed, um, mm-hmm. should take a moment of pause and make sure they're, they, they be, they're specific mm-hmm. about who they're mad at. Because there's some of them that are actually doing their jobs correctly. And I was one of them. I, I, was, I, wanted, I was calling for blood, too, until, until I met some of them. Mm-hmm. Until I got got into their community, and I realized, oh my God, they sacrifice, they risk their lives every day for a stranger, for somebody cussing them out. I mean, how do you, how would that make me feel? So I had, I had to take a moment of pause because I got into the information. So I would like to. I also want to dedicate this performance to the men and women that are doing it the right way. Now, the ones that aren't, the ones that are, that are abusing their power, that are corrupt.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um. I have a different message for them, but the ones that are doing it the right way, the ones that really do care, that are in it for the right reasons, that that want to save these young people, uh, you know, I dedicate this to you.
0: Right. And what do you want to say to the other ones?
1: Uh... (laughs) next question <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. well we use that language of hate well we've talked to but because
1: right. i mean because that's the language of hate you right, know what i mean right. and then no, no, i would I, understand. I would have to retard myself to 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 echo yes to hate and i and I, I don't i don't have the right words right now to 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 express that right. so i i rather highlight and thank the ones that are actually doing their jobs and let them handle it
0: right um yeah we've talked a lot about hate these few minutes already so so I thought it was so beautiful that you um, said that your mother taught you love how did she do that
1: putting God in everything to treat people with respect yes ma'am no sir um, that you aren't above anybody that, um, that 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 we are a community that you must you got to listen to people you never know what people are going through you never know what a hug could do you never know what what taking a little time out for somebody, just listening to somebody, what that can do for someone, you know, to, to, to be, to be humble and to be willing to give your time, to tithe your time, whether it be a conversation, whether it be, you know, a meal, whatever. You know, I mean, and in, and in this craft, in this arts and craft, we're able to, the stories that we collect that the people that we get to meet, you know, we can maybe represent them at some point in a film Mm -hmm. on a, in a play. And then they can look at themselves and be you know, you could save somebody from committing suicide, maybe. You never know.
0: You have worked the past few with some incredible powerhouses. For example, Robert Redford, Harry Belafonte is in your movie now, and of course, um, your dad. What do actors of sort of another generation, what have they taught you when you're on this gangbuster ride of a career you're on this year?
1: There's a whole bunch of reasons, but chief among them, what I've learned was you can be you f- you can accomplish everything these men accomplished so much and guess what and Spike too mm-hmm. and guess what they loved what they do they had this sort of youthful exuberance about about being on set and working mm-hmm. i mean that's what i took away from them they weren't it wasn't like this cynical sort of elitist attitude of i'm am, i am who i am get out of my way I, i'll do it the way i want to they were they were working with people and i think that's also The community, the environment that was set on on the sets that I got to work on. Mm -hmm. So a lot of that is is dependent on the director who's calling the shots. I saw men like these men you talk about, especially Robert Redford and and, and, uh, Harry Belafonte. I didn't see ego.
0: Right. And how do you think they manage that in a career that spans what? six decades, seven in, in, in Hollywood and all that?
1: <laughs> I think they, 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 they kept their humanity. Mm-hmm. I think for the reasons that I told you what my mom told me about love, I think they love properly. I think they love people. I think they love what they do. I think they appreciate the process, are huge advocates of process. Right, right. And they've lived through some trying times. I mean, they, they lived through Malcolm, Martin Luther King being shot, JFK being shot. They know what, that, uh, what Vietnam did to this country. You know, and they're, and they're still living to talk about it. So I feel like they appreciate life.
0: and they can bring that. and they bring that to
1: the screen exactly
0: right yep. um you had you're of course a you were a huge college football player and you were in the NFL, but I thought it was so funny that you referred to your NFL time as a professional bench sitter. <laughs> <laughs> yep, I was, was I'm thinking there's a lot of uh, downtime on sets, too. <laughs> Did that teach you anything?
1: yeah i I apply my bench setting skills to uh to yeah to the set where you have to hurry up and wait a lot of times no there's 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 a, a whole bunch of lessons that i that are so applicable from football to uh to acting for one process for one routine um you know being being able to to be as thorough as possible, and then to adapt to your environment, to be able to free, to ad lib, to adjust on the fly. A lot of times in, fo- in football, you draw up a play, you draw it up, you work on it all week, and in the game, you know something's gonna happen. There a there's a leak on the line, that somebody breaks through. You gotta make a decision. You gotta make a cut. Right. You gotta adapt, and and sometimes that can that can that cut that adaptation will be able to get you a touchdown. And same thing with this, uh, especially on a spike set, you practice and rehearse if you can. And we got to a spike. But if there's these truer moments, the moments that you didn't plan for that are happening, this energy that's happening on set, you kind of you got to got to go with it because that's the touchdown. Yeah. And I, I wouldn't have been able to to trust that, uh, those instincts, if it weren't for football.
0: What's next for you?
1: Uh, I'm hoping to work, you know, if, I'm hoping to work with visionaries. I'm hoping to work with people that really care about the craft, that really love storytelling. I'm really, I'm ready to work with the, like the men we named. I'm ready to work with people without ego. Uh-huh. Or at least the ego was serviced in in the good of the film and for the community. That they, they want whatever is best for the film to work. hmm that's what I, I, that's what I need right now. I need to learn more.
0: Mr. Washington, thank you so much for your time and for your very powerful movie. I very much appreciate it.
1: Appreciate it. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you so much, John David Washington. Black Clownsman is out in theaters in the U.S. and premieres in Sweden on Friday, September 7th. And now, Alicia, you're back with us again to talk about our next guest.
2: Hi, popping back in in the middle of the show.
0: So writer, showrunner, Sarah Gamble, throughout her career, she's been on Supernatural, The Magicians. She's really tackled some very important and difficult themes, especially for teens, I would say, in the sci-fi genre. Um, What can you tell me has been specific about her writing that you've really um, tapped into?
2: Gosh, um, I am in constant awe admiration of Sarah Gamble. She is one of the most... Playfully subversive writers, I think, on TV Um, and one of the coolest showrunners I've had the experience of interviewing and working with. You know, she is somebody that tackles really, really tough issues in a really, really clever way and in a way that doesn't feel like an after school special. It doesn't talk down to its audience. It makes the story better. You know, I I think about a show like The Magicians, which... um, really does tackle a lot of, like, mental health and and sort of adolescent growing pain issues in a very frank way, um, which I think you wouldn't expect from a show about people that have magic and, you know, there are centaurs and gods and demons running around. But, you know, she really takes that and uses it as a fun wink and a subversive nod to um, a lot of very real things. And she uses stuff to make... The plot more interesting and more exciting. You know, it doesn't feel like it's just tacked on. Everything feels very organic. And um, she has, uh, you know, she's an amazing um, mentor for a lot of her writers as well. Like her writer's room is filled with a lot of young writers on that show and what they're able to learn and glean from her and what she's able to provide as An incredible resource, I think, is also just making the TV landscape better.
0: Well, that's so great. We talk about all those things that you mentioned, her writing room and and, and the themes that she talks about. So let's get into this interview. Thank you so much for being with us again.
2: Thank you for having me. I'm excited for everyone to listen to this interview.
0: Sarah Gamble's new show premieres on Lifetime and Netflix this Sunday. It stars Penn Badgley as a stalker in the social media age.
1: Wow. Hello there. Who
3: are you?
0: Everyone just calls me Beck.
3: And there you were. Every account set to public. You want to be seen. Heard. Known. Of course, I obliged. I believe in love at first sight. But love is tricky.
4: Is this Joseph?
3: Can we get real for a second? You have questionable taste in friends. I'm going to help you get the life you deserve. I think I might really like him. You can't be serious. I'm not a maybe. I'm the one.
0: I started by asking Sarah Gamble what she was like as a teenager.
4: Picture a... Uh- a girl who's like, who would have been more successful at looking goth if her hair wasn't so curly and frizzy.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I tried to, not successfully. <laughs> I was a bit of, you know, I was, uh,
4: I think like a lot of people, I, I hadn't found myself certainly when I was a teenager. I was in a smaller community. Um, my parents are immigrants, really, really hardworking and a bit old school. And I was this sort of nascent artist Um, and so everything was very, very intense and um and I had a very strong drive to find um a way to sort of master the crafts around things like writing and acting and singing. I mean, I did it I did it all. Mm -hmm. Um and I did it very passionately and kind of aggressively. (laughs) And um and uh I look back and I just have so much love and compassion for that girl because I felt like such a freak where I was and um, Oh my God, the comfort I would have gotten if somebody had sat down next to me at 15 years old and promised me that one day I would be an adult surrounded by people who are just as passionate and just as excited
0: right. um,
4: and just weird, that, that that probably would have gone a long way.
0: Oh, like for so many teenagers. Where were your parents from?
4: Um, Poland. My parents are uh, political refugees from Poland, were, uh, we're Jewish and um uh, you know,
0: I, everybody
4: has heard about the Holocaust and then there's, uh, several decades of history in Eastern Europe that continues to be troubled mm-hmm. after that, you know, people who survived the war and came back with their families and my parents are that next generation. So, um, they left separately. They met in a refugee camp in Sweden. Um, my dad was like, I'm going to America. Don't wait for me. My mom was like, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. And then she waited for him.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then they met again in New York. How long were they here? They were, I think,
4: if I I remember the story, my mom said, she was there for a couple years. And um, my mom says she met him within four days of getting there. And um, just the way that they have described it to me, um, we have this picture of refugee camps as very dire kind of places with not a lot of resources. But um, when my mom tells these stories, everything sounds very civilized. Mm -hmm. And like, um, there were just nice Swedish people everywhere, basically.
0: Now I've interviewed many a showrunner, but Rainer Maria Rilke is not one of the influences I've heard showrunners <laughs> talk about, which I understand it is for you. Tell me a little bit about that.
4: Oh, what a great question. Um, I I just, uh, I mean, I love poetry. I actually, I, I started writing poetry first um, when I was a kid. And certainly when I was a, a troubled teen, um, I was really into confessional poetry. And, uh, and my love for that particular, very precise way of using language remains. It's kind of how I come back to myself is by sitting down and reading poems. And, um, Rilke has always just sort of spoken to me, especially he has this amazing book of letters that a lot of people are probably well, well aware of called letters to a young poet that kind of came to me at just the right time in my life. So it's that it's the book I have 10 copies of because I'm always giving it to people as
0: gifts. So there you are, um, Sarah, the teenager with your, your background reading Rilke. Um, when did you find sci-fi? I,
4: I found that very, very young. Mm-hmm. Um, my first actual like memory of life is of sitting on my dad's lap watching a guy with pointy ears.
0: <laughs> um,
4: so you know, my dad was a huge Trekkie. He decided I would be a huge Trekkie. I submitted to that because I was four or whatever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, and we would just watch those reruns. We would watch reruns of basically science fiction stuff and Kung Fu movies when I was a kid. And um, I think uh, I-, I think between that and the fact that I was always really drawn to fairy tales and fantastical stories in my reading, um, it's just like in my wiring, in my brain mm-hmm. at this point. And, and when I look at stories, I tend to sort of think in terms of those archetypes. Um, so, you know, even if I'm writing something like this new show, you, that ostensibly does not have a supernatural element anywhere in it. Um, I still tend to think in terms of the archetypes of, of fairy tales and those sort of ancient stories.
0: Right. I mean, for so many of us, I mean, I had either sci-fi or something like Rebel Without a Cause. That was sort of me as a teenager, those two things. But there's everything in it. There's, you know, anxiety and monsters and and and, and depictions of trauma um, in a way that one doesn't find in a lot of other genres. Why do you think that sci-fi really hasn't been elevated to the art of, say, Rilke?
4: I think that's just an error <laughs> on the part of <laughs> snobby populace. I think great art is great art and it transcends, you know, it doesn't, who gives a shit if you're drawing with crayons or acrylics or oil paints, if it's good, it's good. It's kind of how I feel about it. And, um, I think that people, uh, you know, certain people, I mean, you know, we like to think that we're seeing something prestigious, you know, and and we like to categorize things. I guess there's a bit of a conversation about that around the Oscars this year,
0: Right. but, um,
4: there's also something, so I don't know. I tend to sort of roll my eyes at it because I think people like what they like and, and and audiences just kind of as a whole are not stupid. And they're not attracted to things because they're dumb. They're attracted to things because they're interesting and surprising and speak to them and uh, a lot of levels. And um, and then the rest is just, I don't know, think pieces and, and ways that people like to label themselves and each other. Right. Definitely among... Um, the the writers that I work with, because that you know I'm so lucky that I'm basically just surrounded by people who are super geeky in whatever area. <laughs> and within science fiction and fantasy, you can be many many different flavors of geeky. You can you can be super into dragons, you can be super into spaceships, you can be Star Wars or Star Trek. Right? I mean, it's like there's a lot of factions in the Magicians' writers' room, for example.
0: Who but, are your monsters or, or f- figures? Um. Or work. My, I,
4: I think my favorite creator of monsters who's working today is is Guillermo del Toro. Oh right. The one who I feel like it, you know, his work is really beautiful. He's meticulous in designing his creatures. He starts, I think, often with a sketchbook and an idea of a monster, and he has such a direct line, really, from his heart to his head, mm-hmm. um, that goes to this thing that we're talking about, really, which is that, um, Monster stories are stories about the human spirit and this human psyche. They're about what is inside us that we're afraid of, and what is like just outside the circle of the fire that we're afraid of. And he really instinctually gets it on this masterful level. Uh, so I think his work speaks for itself that way. So he's the one that I geek out the most about. Right.
0: I interviewed Doug Jones before Christmas um, and he was talking so poignantly about why he's worked so many years with Guillermo as, as playing his monsters um, just because he was so tall and gangly and weird. And he just, it felt like a monster, his whole upbringing it was really very beautiful. Speaking of
4: people who are kind of underestimated because of the genres that they work in, Doug Jones is such an incredible actor yeah, Incredible, and because he's in 10 hours of prosthetics, people sort of put him in a different category They shouldn't. I don't think they should.
0: Right, right. One of the things that I think that you are so incredible at writing um, with magicians is sort of depicting through your um, characters and and, and magic sort of is mental illness. Um, Tell me a little bit about how you have approached that in magicians, especially for teens.
4: Yeah. I think it was present in the source material. We, uh, John McNamara, my partner on the magicians and I had a lot of conversation about it with Lev Grossman, who wrote the books. And we all agree that there is a thread and sort of unconscious thread. He doesn't speak it as explicitly in the novels, but a sense of Quentin Coldwater frequently fighting depression and hoping that this next thing would be the thing that changes his brain. And then being continually disappointed by the truth of adult life, even though he has magic. So that was always there. I think we made it explicit because it was interesting to us. And I guess when I started working on The Magicians, I saw it as a chance to just kind of do my version of a kind of show that I've written for other people for a really long time. Mm -hmm. When you're on staff of a show, and I was on Supernatural for seven seasons and worked on some other stuff too. And uh, when you're on somebody else's show, your job is really to do your absolute best work, fulfilling their vision. And, um, that was graduate school for me. And it was often really, really fun to, to sort of try to bring to life what basically what Eric Kripke wanted on supernatural. And, um, I'm very fortunate to have learned what I learned, but I came away from it saying, if I get the chance to make a show where my name is on it. Like I'm the co-creator of this show. I just want it to be personal. Mm -hmm. And otherwise, why do it? I don't want to go through the exercise of doing another 150 episodes of a thing with monsters in it. I already did that. And if if we're going to do it and we're going to say, watch this one, I, I don't know what else to do besides be really specific. And I think struggling with mental health is something I really understand intimately. It's something that John understands intimately. I mean- any room of writers is going to have people who understand things like anxiety and depression.
0: Well, it's so important. I mean, it was inter- just while I was um, a few days ago writing and re- questions for you and researching this and everything, an alert came up from something on my email where with a news break that the rate of young people calling suicide helplines today is way up. Yeah. Um, and um, I was just thinking how important it is that there are stories like this for um you know i i'm not sure exactly why the rates are up but how important it is that we keep telling these stories
4: i have theories about why but i think the important thing about it is just like i i don't i don't know i could i couldn't begin to quantify what it does for people when they if they turn on a t they happen to turn on a tv show that's that Is addressing something they're dealing with at that moment. Like I, I don't know what weight to give that, and I don't think too much about that. The thing that I think about a lot is that um, it is powerful to talk about things that are sort of taboo and that are shrouded in shame. And I don't get to, I don't get on a soapbox about it. You know, I'm not trying to like change a ton of hearts and minds. I just feel like I don't want to participate in the culture that says you shouldn't talk about suicide Mm -hmm. and you shouldn't talk about sexual assault. Like, I'm not trying to solve those problems. I don't know how, but I do want to be part of the segment of the population that speaks it out loud and just says, this is messy. This is fucking with my head. Can we talk about this? Mm -hmm. We should talk about this more. So our philosophy on the show is if something comes up and it makes us feel uneasy, we're very likely to be like, "How how can we write a story about that?
0: Right, right. Change um, you probably got this question a lot through your career, but are you have you at all been or how influenced or are you by Buffy and Joss Whedon?
4: Uh, I mean, very. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> because that show is so great on so many levels, and um, it was so good for so long. And I mean, it's it's such a it's a coming of age story, uh, and it was quite masterful at. Using emotional pain as stakes
0: right that's what I was thinking of that they were good yeah. at that they sort of brought that into television somehow <laughs> I, I think
4: there are shows that I don't I don't know I mean I, I guess I know maybe a couple of people peripherally who worked on it I, I doubt they were in the writer's room thinking like we're changing the culture when they were making that oh, show no. for like you know if that show uh, I remember when it first came on, and I was a bit of a snob about it. And my first thought was, "Well, that looks kind of cheap," because it was. It was. <laughs> I went on to do all this TV that we made for a very, very cheap price tag, <laughs> and started to understand, right? But as soon as you sit down and just binge a couple episodes, which I highly recommend for people who who missed it the first time or were too young or whatever, you realize that they're exploiting what's great about B movies. And they're just leaning right into the sort of rubber-suited monster because it's such a stand-in for Everything. the metaphor of the episode that it doesn't matter. And in fact, it's quite pleasurable to see these kind of B-movie-style fight scenes with these um, stuntmen in rubber masks.
0: Um, why are there still so few women in sci-fi? I don't think that's true, actually. Oh, good. I think in
4: the world, I think online, I think on Uh, websites where people post their own fan fiction. I think women who are writing certainly things like YA, Mm -hmm. um, there's a ton of women. The question that that you might be asking, correct me if I'm wrong, is why are there so few women in positions of power in entertainment making this kind of stuff? Right. The answer is probably not that different than in a lot of other kinds of filmmaking and TV making, which is that there is a power structure that predates both of us. And there are assumptions that people make about what you would be good at or interested in based on your gender, and we're—I think that the change is happening pretty quickly in this genre because it's such a diverse genre. Mm. But, uh, but you know, there's there's a lot of stereotypes about who's good at writing action and who can write like really muscular sci-fi opera or whatever and it's all complete bullshit
0: it's so weird with the sci-fi genre because i mean for me at least growing up it's such it's the perfect genre for a young girl (laughs) i mean with everything we've been discussing um previously it's it has everything it does i mean i've
4: been to comic-con and it's not like a sea of dudes
0: no there are so
4: many passionate fans who are women and I, i haven't seen the statistics i'm just really just speaking anecdotally, but, um, you know, the people who, uh, I I don't know, it's a stereotype that's sort of like, I look at it and I'm like, I'm sure the statistics, the general statistics about show running bear that out because I think 80% of showrunners are men. Um, and my real answer to that to anyone who's listening and is like, should I be concerned because I'm a woman and I want to write this? The answer is a resounding, no, you should write it. You should write twice as much of it you should, uh, you know, put a sign on your desk that says, go fuck yourself and look <laughs> at it every single time you think, right? Because right. I don't know. I, I mean, if you really want to be a capitalist about it, there's a hole in the marketplace because there should be more stuff mm-hmm. by women and writers of color in this genre. So, um, you know, this should be we, what we, what this uh, podcast should be is just like recruitment. We should be re- recruiting people. Yes, with please. This conversation. <laughs>
0: And what about your room, um, like show running post Me Too? How do you try to diversify? What's your thinking? Who, who do you bring in, for example, for you? I mean, how have you been um, putting together the writers for that? Uh,
4: for you, I met a ton of, you know, you, sit, you basically what happens is there's a system in place where um, agents from all over town send all of their writers who might be appropriate. And because that is a giant dilute, like you wouldn't be able to get into the door of your office, um, the studio and sometimes the production company that is making the show tend to stand between the showrunner and the agents just so that they can bring the list down from like 50. To like forty, for you
0: to <laughs> that's still a lot. You know?
4: So um, it's not always like that. And and I have direct relationships with the uh, you know people who were like oh you know now I think is the perfect time for you to sit down and meet this young writer I was telling you about. But the bottom line when we were meeting on you was that um, I was sitting down and talking to just a big range of writers um, who responded to the material and wanted to talk about it. And there was a moment where where it looked like the whole writers room would be female mm-hmm. and. Um, we were like, Oh, that's interesting. Okay. Well, if that happens, that happens. And, and the not counting Greg Berlanti and myself, we ended up with four women and two men in the room Mm -hmm. and it's a really great dynamic.
0: Just naturally. Yeah. It's just
4: sort of who was great for it. And then, um, there's something about making a show that's so primarily about toxic masculinity, bad relationships, and just the crazy stuff that we teach ourselves and our kids in this culture about what romance should feel like if you're a girl or a boy. Um, there was something that felt powerful and good about just filling the room with people who think really critically mm-hmm. about that. And interesting, uh, yeah. And, and, and everyone was excited to do so. I think it felt the room felt kind of safe and a bit charged up in a good way, you know, cause it was um, just, you know, just a big bunch of feminists of various genders. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, the, you know, the, I really have to hand it to the two gentlemen who were on the writing staff of you because they did a certain amount of time have to say, you know, they would be like, okay, can I talk about how I feel about this stereotype of men that you just brought up? <laughs> and it'd be like, I'm so glad someone is using the word stereotype because they're right. right. You know? So it was, I think a little bit of a, maybe, a. A reversal of what frequently happened, what certainly was most of my writer's room experience. Coming up as a writer, I was frequently the only woman in the room. So, the every now and again, and I certainly didn't, you know, sit in a chair in the pink chair and always raise my hand to say, "As a woman," I mean, that almost never happened. Right. But every now and then, I would say, uh, "I think I need to to slow the conversation down here for just a second and let you know how that hit me
0: mm-hmm.
4: because um, because I've been in that situation or whatever." and the men were having to do that
0: for right. to show you. that's that's a, that's a kind of a first <laughs> were you <laughs> yeah. cool. it was um, very cool yeah. um, one of the things that you're younger than I am I think but, but um, that we didn't have to deal with is what you're dealing with in, in you as much as the social media aspect of being young now what have you learned um, writing you about how that impacts young people and how should we be thinking about that
4: I think it's it's so multifaceted. We could talk for an hour just about this. I think when you're like, why why are young people more anxious and more depressed? I I actually do think that part of the reason is because we're so hyper connected to our phones. Right. And uh, I mean, I'm I'm just quoting a lot of articles and statistics I've read, but I also have felt it in myself that there's a lot of impulses in my brain that are about checking and. Uh, you know, making sure I haven't missed something or being concerned about something. I just ran it and it was very much exacerbated for me after the last presidential election where my um, feeling about news and about the opinions of the people I was following on social media, just everything just felt so magnified.
0: Mm-hmm.
4: But um, specifically for, specifically for this season of the show, a thing that struck me, I mean, it's easy to say that privacy is gone, but really privacy is gone. And you don't even have to be on social media. You have friends and colleagues and people around you who are on social media, and they are including you
3: mm-hmm. in that
4: world without, with or without your consent, sometimes just with data sharing and sometimes because you happen to be in the room when a picture is taken. And when you're talking about a, a young woman like Beck, who is the, the female lead of, of you, she's a young woman living in New York. She doesn't have a lot of resources. She wants to be a professional writer. She is making ends meet as a yoga teacher. You have to have a social media presence. Mm-hmm. You have to brand yourself, really. I mean, that's everything we teach people about just the baseline of being successful. So I actually started to get a little pissed off on her behalf <laughs> as we really delved into this because it's it's uh it's tempting to say this is a cautionary tale about vanity. It's tempting to say, People are more narcissistic than ever, and they put selfies on Instagram. But that is just a bullshit reduction of what is really happening in our culture, which is we are demanding access to people on this really high level that affects their ability to be employed, and it affects their social. I mean, it's that that's it's real and it's tribal and it's a catch twenty two because you don't want to be, you don't necessarily want to bear your soul. You also don't want every single thought to be permanent forever that can come back and bite you. And, and yeah, if you meet a Joe Goldberg, he's going to be able to find your apartment.
0: <laughs> I have to ask you what would be with all your, you know, you seem to have read everything and, and, and so interested in, in art and And what would be a dream project for you or dream story to tell in the future? Oh,
4: I have, I have like a little book with ideas and I have many, many of those, but, uh, I, I feel like I haven't even scratched the surface of, of these genres and would like to to do more. The thing the thing about right now is there's more TV than ever and there are more places than ever and, and creators are being encouraged to be quirkier and more niche and and to follow that weird idea down a rabbit hole in a way that doesn't have to be like as sustainable as 10,000 episodes of CSI or something. So it really just feels like... It's that um, that the, the, that there some kind of a a ceiling has been broken. Mm-hmm. Um, the last thing I read that I am jealous of because I, I haven't looked to see who's writing it, but I can only assume it's well into development is um, the power by Naomi Alderman. I'm a little late to the party, but I actually just finished it this morning. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love I really love story. I felt this way years ago when I read Why the Last Man, mm-hmm. which I guess is now also happening um and I read that those comic books so long ago that I was beating this drum like it should be a tv show and it was so long ago that people were like no it definitely needs to be a film because it's it's a very important piece of work (laughs) but now of course it'll be a tv show but I I really love speculative fiction where uh you know you drop something into the middle of a society and it shakes its to shakes it to its core and then you watch that society rebuild I mean um, I think probably the most successful show like that on TV right now is The Walking Dead. Right. Uh, but there's a there's so many things you can say. It's a zombie apocalypse, and in the case of this novel I just finished, it's about uh, you know women suddenly having this mutation where they can shock you with electricity and kill you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as that spreads, the the dynamic between men and women all over the world changes very very rapidly because women are stronger. Interesting. Uh, so, yeah, stories like that are delightful. I just, I I like to live in worlds that you can continue to riff on and unfold for, you know, you can skip five years into the future and see what was, what's happening. Those are my favorite. Right.
0: Well, and, and also I would, I'm looking forward to that Sarah Gamble, Guillermo del Toro collaboration sometime in the future. (laughs) I keep talking about him. I
4: hope he doesn't think I'm stalking him because I'm really not.
0: (laughs) I am an expert in stalking.
4: I don't myself partake. All
0: right. (laughs) Sarah, thank you so much for taking your time with me. I really appreciate it. It was so interesting.
4: Thanks. This was great.
0: Thank you so much to Sarah Gamble. You premieres on Lifetime in the U.S. and Netflix over here on Sunday, September 9th. And thank you so much for listening. You can follow the show on Twitter at PodPopCulture, on Instagram and Facebook. And of course, on our website, popcultureconfidential.com. Take some time to rate us on iTunes and SoundCloud. We really appreciate it. This show was edited by Tom Hansen and I'm Christina Jerling Biro. Thank you so much for listening.
3: History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies, big and small.